AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Uh, Charles W. Chuck Bryant here in the basement, and this is Filmmaker Series with Paul Thomas Anderson. Not with Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> I'm with the far superior Adam Branica. <laughs> I mean, we really went down a trail to get to that introduction <laughs> at the end. I went through a lot of emotions being introduced as Paul Thomas Anderson by you, Chuck. Thanks. Oh man, I'm having so much fun with this series with you because yeah. uh, a Paul Thomas Anderson is one of my faves, and we're getting into some some pretty good stuff. Not not to slag any of his first four films, but uh, there will be blood was when I sat back and I think a lot of people did and went, oh, like this is what Paul Thomas Anderson is doing here with his life and career. <laughs> It's interesting the way confidence reveals itself in filmmakers we love, like, and how so often many of them get the confidence and then like poison their own wells with yeah. like, not to, not to like, look at me using like well terminology and there will be blood. <laughs> wow. I didn't but, even pick up on that. But like, we we mentioned this like the very first time we talked about a Paul Thomas Anderson film, like just how apparent the confidence was from the start. Yeah. And here we are several films in and it's just like 
growing in strength and you don't get the accompanying like repulsion to that kind of confidence that I think you get in some filmmakers where you get overconfident and too flashy. Yeah. And in many ways, like, like there will be blood pulls back on that. It slows it all down. It's not flashy in, in ways that other directors would choose to be. Totally. Yeah. He, uh, he was, he was after a Scorsese thing, I think early in his career and whipping that camera around and, quick cutting and sweeping around and telling these huge stories with a hundred characters. And then he went, wait a minute, let me, let me be John Ford for a minute. Yeah. And, uh, Let's dabble in the Ford. Yeah. But before we start talking about the movie, <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> uh, how is anyone doing? You guys right hanging? Now? It's, it's an exciting time to be alive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hanging just fine. Are you, have you been able to see any of L.A. yet? No. Still? No, and depending on when this episode comes out, I don't know that that will be Tomorrow. a reality, really. <laughs> oh, wow, that's, yeah. that's one of those, huh? <laughs> sure. I love the confidence you have in episodes you do with me that uh, nothing will need to be edited. <laughs> this is a way of oh, podcast dude. life that is that is not the way we do things uh, at The Greatest Generation. Do you guys edit heavily? We do, yeah. Uh, what yeah, about we, for Friendly Fire? We really hammer those shows. Really? Uh, with with drops and sound effects and uh, taking all of our stammering out. Oh, God. Don't take the stammering out. I know. People are often shocked to speak to me in real life and <laughs> notice that it takes me five minutes to get to the point of what I'm saying. <laughs> I love that about you, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you guys edit Friendly Fire he- pretty heavily? Uh, our producer, Rob Schulte edits mm-hmm. that show and, uh, and does a great job with it. I think, Agreed. I think he would blow his brains out if he gave it the amount of scrutiny that we give, uh, greatest, greatest gen. Yeah. Greatest gen takes about a day of editing oh, it's wow. complete and that's about an hour long show. If that you, is any uh, indication of how much we hit, we <laughs> hammer it. Is that you or Ben or do you switch it off? We alternate. Oh, okay. That's cool. That show used to come out. Two episodes a week back when we were insane. Right. <laughs> uh, back in those early seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation. And then we backed off after TNG and went uh, one episode a week, the standard. Yeah. As soon as we joined the podcasters union, we were told uh, one a week is what you do. Well, so we did that and we edit every other one. You know what? Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but between... Uh, the new short stuffs, not new, but newer short stuffs and mini crushes. I publish podcast episodes on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And we release a classic on Saturday. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Cannot get enough <laughs> Chuck. Put it in my ear holes. <laughs> uh, and you know, I, I texted you and I've been, you know, we text all the time or whatever, but I, uh, I, you know, I took a podcast break from kind of everything, but the Aukerman Scott podcast barreled through that for several months. That's a delight. It is. It's great. But, um, so I binged that for a while and then, uh, have dove right back into Flophouse and Friendly Fire. Oh, great. And boy, it's good to be like hanging out with you guys again. Cause that's what it feels like. Like my three friends, 
And I'm, I'm, I told Ben yesterday on text, I was like, I'm that podcast fan. I'm just constantly talking back to you guys <laughs> or straight up texting you and being like, dude, of course, in Gallipoli, uh, the other guy would have been fast enough to make it. Right, right. <laughs> and those and, are the arguments we're famous for starting on that show. Uh, who would win in a foot race, Mel Gibson <laughs> or the other guy? Uh, it's great stuff, man. And I am uh, I just started the English patient episode today. I'm kind of skipping around. Oh, cool. And uh, it's it's a good one so far. We really like that movie. It was good. Yeah. And I loved you, how much. Are you someone who always watches the source material for the talk about the source material brand of podcast that, that no. we both tend to enjoy? No, not at all. In fact, I I rarely Did you have watch seen... There Will Be Blood? <laughs> you dick. You're going to need to do that, Chuck. Of course I do for this show, asshole. I, <laughs> you put um... them out seven days a week, Chuck. I, I don't think it's unusual to ask that question. Well, it's my job. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I watch... Uh, I've rarely seen many of the Flophouse episodes because, you know, they do so many really yeah. bad sort of semi-obscure movies. Um, and, you know, I've seen probably only about 30% of these friendly fire movies, but I don't feel like I have to go watch them. I like get a lot out of the episode without having seen the movie. I'm sure a lot like some of the movie crush folks do. That's part of the magic of uh flop house is that, is that the show is so strong and good without the need to see yeah. the movie. We curate friendly fire in such a way that we, we choose not to do movies that aren't easily available on a streaming service. Right. Because we're hoping that people watch these movies. Ideally. Oh, totally. Yeah. And there's some that I've gone back and watched because of you guys. And I'm definitely going to watch fucking uh, uh, Final Countdown now. You I gotta, can't believe it. I don't know how I didn't know about that movie. <laughs> I don't know either. It's the sweet spot, like age wise totally. and interest wise. It's yeah, it yeah, hits all hits all the targets. It's a real treat. Real fun I love, movie. <laughs> I love how much you loved it. And how much Ben didn't. And it seemed like, you know, I hear you guys seem to have a genuine divide very much, but that was a lot of fun for me. <laughs> it's fun to really enjoy something at another person in a way that is antagonistic. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. That's so funny. Uh, so I'm doing it, by the way, speaking of Flophouse, I'm doing a uh, a run with all three of those guys, uh, three three weeks in a row with the Floppers. Really? Yeah. So I recorded with Stuart yesterday and I've got Dan in for next week. And then Elliot's going to be the week after. They, they are all so great together. Uh, good job by you getting, getting maximum value from spreading them out. <laughs> week yeah, in and week that, out. They're, yeah, they're awesome individually too. Like, I think, uh, I think those totally. are going to be great. Can you reveal yes. what the movies are going to be? Yeah, sure. Um, Stewart's was Ricky O, the story of Ricky. Do you know this movie? Yes, I do. Uh, mostly from its uh, the imagery used on the Daily Show back when yeah, right. when Kilborn used to host it. Right? That's, right, that's what it's known for. Yeah, but you know, I have to say that head uh, symbol clap, head explosion, yeah. is fairly tame compared to what happens in that movie. Wow, <laughs> I I haven't seen it. I'm gonna have to see it then, based on that review. It's pretty great. I mean, it's 90 minutes of of good, bad dubbing and, you know, the eyeball gouge count or or eyeball pop out count is high. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, even better. (laughs) Multiple disembowelments, uh, very creative gore. (laughs) I love it. So, yeah, he did that one. I think Dan is doing Aliens, which will be fun. 
How and has that not been done on on Movie Crush yet? I don't know, man. Alien hasn't either. What? I know. I'm dying to do Alien. When we did Aliens on Friendly Fire, I said it then, and I and I still mean it. I think it's one of my favorite movies of all time, and it is because it it almost exists outside of its genre. It's not a science fiction movie or a mm-hmm. war film yeah. or anything else. It is it is so many things. I think it's it's great. Was that a pork chop movie? No, that was a mainline friendly fire movie. Oh man, I need to I need to hit that one next. Then I don't think I saw that one for some reason. It is so good. That's a movie yeah. that I return to a couple of times a year. It that movie never gets it. old. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long, long time. And you and Elliot are doing that one. No, that's uh, Dan's. I don't know what Dan, Elliot is. Awesome, yet. Yeah. awesome. So that'll be good. Yeah. Um. All right. Have we caught up? I think so. What are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking a big glass of bourbon. I don't that's know if a you nice, can see that. Uh, I can. You're holding it right in my face. Yeah. That's that's a nice glass. Uh, this a a good friend of mine for my birthday uh, got me the Blade Runner glasses. Oh shit! Is that so, what that is? So I'm drinking this out of the heavy ass oh. Blade Runner glass. And you're, you're uh, the uh, you're on the clouds of uh, Orion. No, what's it called? Shoulder of Orion. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 about to get sea beam wasted. If you <laughs> catch my drift, I'm going to get sea beam glittery. That's amazing. That's uh, not quite as cool as Adam Savage's Blade Runner replica gun that he has made himself with his hands. Nothing that I have or will ever have is as cool as anything Adam Savage has in that warehouse space. Yeah, his the worst piece of shit in that warehouse space is cooler than anything I own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, agreed. Like whatever he uses as a garbage can is better than yeah. than anything I've got. Uh, I've got a really, I've got the best bottle of bourbon in the house. What is poured, it poured into this glass? Uh, this is Old Boudreaux's. Bourbon. Jamie Boudreaux is the owner and bartender of a place called Cannon in Seattle, and it's a place oh, wow. I really want to go to with you uh, okay. if we're ever ever able to be in Seattle at the same time. It's it's one of the best bars in the world, and it's wow. and it's run by a total gentleman. And he uh, he started bottling his own bourbon. Oh, it's one man. of those places with a thousand bottles on yeah. the wall, and owned by a guy who's just a collector of of rare spirits. It's, yeah. it's just the best. That's amazing. I want to try it. Yeah. I love go. the bartender that makes his own booze. That's great. Yeah. It's legit. It is. It's delicious. I know I'm probably not supposed to be drinking it with a big ice cube, but uh, oh, okay, I think we've man. talked about this. We like our drinks cold. Yeah, I do. Um, I'm drinking, uh, cause you're drinking, you asked, you texted me and said, uh, what are you drinking, mister? And you <laughs> said, what would, what would Daniel Plainview drink? And I said, your milkshake? Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, of course, you would drink whiskey, so that's what you're doing. But by that time, I had poured a giant gin and tonic into my giant 16-ounce Yeti mug so I didn't have to get up and pour I a second it. one. I love a Yeti mug for, for keeping it chill. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. 
Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous Podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Question about Daniel Plainview's drinking in this movie. We see him drink out of the flask quite a bit. We see him pour booze into a glass of milk for uh, yeah. for his son. What is he drinking? Like, are we clear on what's in the flask? Because it doesn't turn the milk brown. It looks it like a clear spirit. So much. I thought it looked brown in his flask, though, no? Yeah, it did in the flask. But not when mixed with the milk. Maybe it's moonshine. Oh, maybe so. It's so unclear, dude, but it really looks like it does the job. Yeah. Well, it doesn't. Sh- it's weird because it doesn't show him. You see him. He, you see him hitting the flask, but it doesn't show him hitting a bottle to excess to no. indicate anything. But he does seem very drunk, at least at the end. Right. It appears as though there is a substance abuse problem. Yeah. Uh, Storyline here. Yeah. Um. All right, so there will be blood. The next, you know, we skipped um, Punch Drunk Love. You allowed me to skip that since I did that with Tony Hale. Although at the end of this, maybe we'll go back and do it again because it'd be a different conversation. Uh, it would, but I loved your conversation with Tony Hale and I would never dream to uh, to try to best it. So, Well, it wouldn't be that, but I mean, that was a live one too. So that was, uh, I mean, you were at that one. I was. Uh, so that was, uh, live shows are always a little different. So I think we could probably have a, probably a deeper run at that movie. So maybe we should do that at some point, but um, there will be blood. Like I said, was, was the movie where I was like, PTA is not fucking around here. He's got a lot more going because I loved him, but this just showed to me that he had a lot more going on than I thought he did. This was the time where I was going to see his movies at midnight showings the night they dropped at the independent movie theater. Yeah, that's awesome. And this film was like punch drunk love was unique and special and mm-hmm. a surprise totally but this this film felt like an assault yeah. at at midnight like you go to the midnight screening and you're like okay i'm ready for my two and a half hours of awesome and it was i mean i mean assault in the best way like it was yeah. a physical you know, experience a good assault. <laughs> yeah to to watch it that first time and it's been a film that I go back to uh, every year for a lot of reasons. It's like, it's, it's the best kind of assault. Like you said, it's great. <laughs> it's great to feel something when you watch a movie. I think this is yeah. 
something that we agree on uh, about the entire PTA oeuvre. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a movie that I'm going to go back to now. I, I had only seen it the one time, man. Yeah. I saw it in the theater and uh, I liked it a lot, but it, this time I fucking loved it. Like it, it took on a whole different spin for me. Uh, always, you know, I always say this, but when I watch movies in a studied lens, like for the show that really, you know, when you watch a movie like that, that's a different experience. And boy, this is just a fucking phenomenal film on yeah. every single level. Yeah. Some people think it's boring and slow, but, and you don't want to be those guys to be like, well, they just didn't get it because <laughs> that's shitty, but because it's not for everyone, you know, there's no rootable protagonist. I love that sensibility about movies in general, though. You know, like, yeah. some things aren't for everyone, and that's fine. Yeah. Like, the story of Ricky isn't for everyone. But, <laughs> you, get, but you get two of the right people together to talk about it. It's it's the perfect thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, um, I mean, let's just dive in, man. We can go anywhere we want. Uh, you know, it opens up with that that menacing... Uh, Johnny Greenwood score and just that that synth stab at the beginning that droning synth that just yeah. immediately I, I imagine I mean I don't really remember but you remember that first viewing that just washes over a theater crowd like a heavy uncomfortable quilt <laughs> yeah it really like it's a it's a continuation of the promise of what happened in Punch Drunk Love, like Punch Drunk Love was visual and auditory and how it like disrupted you a little bit yeah. during the experience. But this is, this feels like a continuation of that theme. Like how can we create an atmosphere of being unsettled? And the answer many times in this movie is that Johnny Greenwood score. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's discordant and percussion, but it's like not on time with itself. Yeah. And it just makes you uncomfortable throughout the movie and and I think it's a it's an aspect to this film that's been copied by a lot of other filmmakers as as so. time has gone on. Yeah, I mean it ended up being a I think you're right. I think it ended up being a very influential score. Uh and the fact that it was Johnny Greenwood, it got a lot of buzz for that. Um and I think I remember hearing that he did the score beforehand and what I what we got was not what I expected. Not that I had a preconceived notion, but I love Radiohead. They're one of my favorite bands. And yeah. uh what he did was was just what worked for this film. It had nothing to do with Radiohead, obviously. I'm really excited when I learn that uh successful creative people have moments like where where they have a crisis of confidence. And the right. story about Johnny Greenwood and doing the score was like he didn't think he could do it. Oh, he didn't. Really? He didn't think he'd do enough, a good enough job for Paul Thomas Anderson. And Paul Thomas uh, Anderson, Anderson was like, "Dude, you're Johnny Greenwood. Right. You're amazing." Like, and it's and it's like PTA coaching him through it. Like, you're wow. doing great, man. Like, keep keep making it. Like, this is exactly yeah. what I'm going for. And and I like that the idea that two creators could have that kind of mutual respect for each other, and that respect could take the form of, "I don't know if I'm good enough for you." Is yeah. interesting. That's a very like, it's, it's like a very human quality to yeah. to someone like I don't think of people in Radiohead as human. That's like the quality I ascribe to to right. what they make. You know? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, it's kind of sweet in a way that he would feel that way. And I sort of get it though. Like as, even though he's Johnny Greenwood to be like, you know what? I want to try a movie score. Yeah. Um, and Paul Thomas Anderson comes knocking. I don't know how that all came about, but that's, you know, you're not dipping it's your toe knock. in the pool. <laughs> it's a big knock. <laughs> big knockers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what, like one of the, one of the low key things that really grabs your attention when this movie starts is the title card that says 1902. Yeah. And if you sit in that, that moment for a second and you recognize that like, it's just over a hundred years ago. Yeah. That this shit is taking place. Yeah. It It's shocking that, that so much happens in a century. Yeah. And the movie takes place over a, a almost 30 year period. I think it's like 28 or 29 years. Yeah. And, um, that the font that they use yeah. for the title cards and the and the and the year uh title cards um very biblical obviously mm-hmm. and starting i think it uh, did it start in 1902 i thought it started in 1898 yeah it did uh the 1902 title card was just something that that squared its time like by the century right, 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 like that's right. as close to an even century as i think any of the title cards get Right. So it started in the late 1800s. And um, another thing I love about this film and films like this is, uh, and it sort of reminded me of Days of Heaven and the reality of what life was like back then and and how uh, shitty <laughs> oil rigging was and yeah. digging fucking pipeline ditches 100 miles long. Like you do that shit with your fucking hands, man. That's not a technical garment that Daniel Plainview is wearing at the bottom of the well. Like that is hot, thick wool, like tin cloth he's got on down there. It's, it's incredible. And like, this is a film that's full of those kind of details, the discomfort and the dirt. Yeah. And could you imagine like you've been on your share of film sets, but like the, the dirtiness apparent on every character in here has got to stick to every part of the production. Like yeah. every camera has got to be covered in the same dust. Every, yeah. every light, every scrim, every. I bet it was a tough shoot. Oh, it, it seems like a real punisher. Yeah. And I don't know what they use for the oil. Um, was it oil? <laughs> is it, that a dumb question? There is, I should look this up because there's a specific name for it, but the stuff that McDonald's uses for their milkshakes, coincidentally enough. Wow. Seriously. Uh, it starts as a, as a base. It's a liquid base that you then add flavor and other liquid to, to make the McDonald's milkshake. You mean this it's is a thing that milk and cream and sugar. <laughs> I know a lot of people are going to be shocked to hear that it, that it comes in a, in a tanker truck. Yeah. <laughs> But that's what it is when you go and get your frap from Costco, like your 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 mocha freeze or whatever. It all comes from the same source stuff, wow. this this sludgy stuff. And that's what this liquid is that they use really? throughout the film. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That's so funny that it's milkshake. <laughs> I don't know if it's better to think about it being like if it had been real oil or if it had been sweet McDonald's milkshake. That's fucking gross too. Like they're both almost equally gross in their <laughs> own way. They really are. They really are. Well, it certainly looks good, man. I mean, I guess they had, uh, I mean, the whole movie looks 
I mean, we got to talk about Jack Fisk for a minute and he was the production designer and just a a fucking icon of that department over the years. He did the early Malick. He did days of heaven. Uh, he did right over his plate. That's where he and Sissy Spacek met and they are still married today. Awesome. Uh, I think they're, yeah, they're still married. True love is, is possible. (laughs) It is. Uh, but Oh man, they just, there's not a a frame in this film that doesn't look like they just had a fucking time machine and dropped themselves in the period. You know what? But it also doesn't feel like it's overdone, like a, like a, a Christmas store in a shopping mall where every square inch is filled with a detail. Yeah. It doesn't, it isn't overdone in a flashy way. It's, it's perfectly, it's restrained like so much of the rest of this movie. Well, I was just about to say that it, it is restraint. It's spare. Um, it's not a huge cast. It's not, you never see, you never see the, the world at all. Like it's always very insular around this man and where he is at the time. And he's by virtue of the story, he is sort of out in the boonies, but you know, he never goes to the big city to do anything. There's never any weird subplot where he has to go into town. Uh, Mm -hmm. there's, there's not much there. Your your comment about that perspective, I think, is spot on, and it's it's you notice it in the visual compositions too, because like how often are you seeing the back of Daniel Day Lewis's head in yeah. scenes? Like you've got a Daniel Day Lewis here, and right, he's acting, that face. and uh-huh. you're gonna and you're gonna spend fifteen <laughs> seconds on the back of his head. Are you yeah. crazy? Yeah. But so often we get these super long sequences unspooling and you're just getting like just glimpses of perspectives. Uh, it's, it's incredible the way that this film spends its time. Yeah. Did you, were you able to watch that YouTube thing I sent? I did. That that was a really interesting link that you sent me. Yeah. I posted that on the movie crush page, but if you're not there and you are listening and you, um, how I framed it when I posted it is, is a primer, but also, if people that listen to the show or movie shows don't and are movie fans, but don't feel like they really understand what camera framing and placement and movement and editing and pace, like kind of what that all means and how it affects a film, watching that little seven minute video really kind of lays it out there in a way that's super interesting and very easy to understand. And the long and short of it, if you haven't seen it, uh, is that not you, but the listener is that, uh, the average shot length of this movie ends up being about 13 seconds long, which if you don't know much about it, it might be like whatever, but that is really, really, really long. Right. Yeah. The, the math of that is astounding. And it's also like an evolution of, of a filmmaker's sensibility. When we were talking about Boogie Nights and about uh hard eight slash Sydney, Mm-hmm. I know one of the one of the aspects that we enjoyed was like the the introduction to a scene with that three shot sequence. Yeah. And the evolution of the three shot sequence in this film is instead an unbroken shot in right. three parts where yes. we're finally we're like we're starting uh with a with an SCU and then we're widening out even more and then maybe uh-huh. we're pushing in on a character. Yeah. And you're still using those three beats. Yeah. to open a scene in a way that's just a furtherance of a sensibility. Yeah, and and he makes a point of that in the video too, the the three frame shot or whatever. Yeah. Uh and and 
another sort of one of the takeaways from that video was, um, is that when you do a movie like that and you have this kind of deliberate pacing, it really puts a lot of heat on the editor because the cuts are so important because they're not just cuts they're, uh There's a real purpose behind each one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, considering it from a, from a production aspect and not just an editorial aspect, like, it's so much easier to film your sequences in shorter runs. Yeah. Because going back to one in a standard film is a fairly easy process. We're going to, we're going to roll the dolly back. We're going to, we're going to take it again. Go here. It's like, get your 200 extras back into place. Yeah. Walk Daniel day Lewis back up the, the oil rig. Like it's, it's seven minutes of stuff to redo. And I wonder how many takes you get in a day for a sequence like that. Well, yeah. And think about, I mean, you were talking about the dirt. Think about the sequences where they start out with no oil on them and end up covered in oil Yeah, to go back to one. And for everyone listening, we assume you know this, you may not. Back to one means first positions. And that's basically just resetting everything. Like you said, put the camera back in place, but you know, a lot of times you're moving lights back into place. Yeah. The, the actors have to completely change their wardrobe and sometimes take a shower. Yeah. And like a reset like this could take like an hour. And if you're shooting sequences for coverage, you're depending on an actor's proprioception to remember where they were, where their hands were, yeah, what they were yeah. looking at at a certain at that a certain script supervisor <laughs> at a certain spot and like yeah when your takes are 7 minutes long or whatever that's an incredible amount of of data for an actor to retain uh in a in a movie like this it's just a miracle yeah yeah and more than that like you know a script supervisor will a good script supervisor scripty will will have all that for you yeah because the actor will be like, which hand did I have the the, yeah. the Bible in or the book in? And uh, but I think getting back to that emotional space is exactly just as be important. Ch- yeah, not just important, but super fucking hard. But you know, it's Daniel Day Lewis, <laughs> and is I there mean, anyone better in the world at acting you, than him? If you've spent five minutes screaming at a kid in your scene, <laughs> oh like God. it's one thing for for DDL to like go back to one emotionally. Yeah. But when you're uh, Dylan Frazier, like, yeah, how do you do it? Yeah, his son. It's totally. It's one of the miracles of this movie is how they could pull that off. Yeah, I mean, there's so many great actors in the world, uh, but he's the best at it, right? <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis. This is not. Or there's no one better. No, there's not. I can't imagine. You're already Paul Thomas Anderson. Just try to imagine, like you introduced me as Paul Thomas Anderson. Now I'm going to do this to you. <laughs> imagine you're Paul Thomas Anderson and you're as great as Paul Thomas Anderson. And I'm married to Maya Rudolph, which is so much fun. Now imagine you've, uh, you've thrown up the, you've thrown open the door to your wagon. You're going to set, uh, and you're working with Bob Ellswood. Yeah. And your, your actor, your star is Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. This is as good as it gets, I think, for a storyteller. You have all of the best pieces. You've got Jack Fisk, direct uh, production designing your film. You've got Johnny Greenwood. Um, I wonder D- if Dylan Tickener is the editor. He's amazing. I wonder. This is like an aspect to 
like I read a lot of interviews with PTA, but I wonder to what extent you're you're nervous when the deck of cards you're given to play with is all aces. And you and I wonder right. if there's any aspect <laughs> to him in his mind that's like, how do I fuck this up? I can't fuck this up, right? Yeah. That there there is a weird sort of pressure there that's sort of antithetical yeah. to what you think. You're like, I've got all the best people, but then I wonder if at some point it's like, oh shit, I've got yeah. all the best people. <laughs> Guess who the weak point in this entire project is? <laughs> all right. So Mark Bridges is the costume designer. And um did he win for this? I know this won a, a handful of Academy Awards. I think it won a oh, I should have looked that up. Why do I think it won a an editing award? Did it? Are you looking that up? Oh, I'll uh, I'll help. <laughs> I, I should help. That's what I should do. It won for actor, obviously, and it won for cin- cinematography. Oh, okay. Uh, and, so, but it was nominated for editing and sound editing and art direction. But uh, Daniel Day Lewis won for this one, though, right? He did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, geez. Uh, so speaking of shots, I, I mean, there are so many great shots, but one of my favorites is the, uh, and I'm sure you'd love this one too. Uh, that the shot where um, toward the end where they're digging the pipeline and it goes that long tracking shot all the way down the pipeline and again showing that backbreaking pickaxe work yeah. of what you had to do to build a pipeline like that yeah and uh, then it gets to the uh, that big wide shot when the camera settles of the when uh, Plainview is reunited with his son in the field and then it swings around and follows as they cross over the train tracks and walk to the to the right of camera and uh it, it lulls you to sleep such that i had to rewind it because i didn't realize it was one shot yeah it was so well done it's hypnotic in that way yeah yeah and and i think one aspect to that video that you sent me that was studying this movie was that like there's a greater value placed on every cut when yeah. there are so few of them in a movie like this yeah for sure yeah. That was um, a scene that made me wonder, like, you remember when they're, remember when they're laying the pipe, Jeff? <laughs> I know that was your favorite part. Uh, there's, there's the pickaxe guys, uh, down pipe, we'll call it. But, yeah. the, but the people with pipe, there's like the, the wrenchers, the people connecting the two pieces. Yeah. And yeah. then there's a guy with a hammer tink tinking the pipe. And it made me wonder, is that the guy that you see you know, in the bottom of, of like a Roman ship hitting the drum so that the people with the oars oh, I don't know. row in time? Like or a, was Like there a, a timekeeper? Yeah. Like, is, he, is he the click track? I wonder if he's the click track to the pipe laying or if, if like, what is, what's with the hitting of the empty pipe with the hammer other than I to... I, I didn't know. notice that guy. Yeah. Well, I'll I, tell you one thing. He wasn't there by accident because Paul Thomas Anderson spent a... Uh, he did a lot of work to get this movie right and did a lot of studying yeah. on what the process was like of uh, searching for that. Well, he's not at the very beginning. He's searching for silver, I think. Right. Yeah. He's a, a silver miner a prospector and he finds oil and uh, his career kind of takes a different turn after after the leg snap. Yeah, it's pretty incidental how his life took a turn yeah boy that leg snap too when you see it and then you see him laying on the floor with just the board strapped to it and you know what year it is and you're like man 
I don't know if he knows it, but he he will always be in pain and he will always walk with a limp from here to the end of time. Daniel Plainview died of dysentery was the <laughs> was the title card I was expecting. Yeah, I love the detail of the dirty floor. Like he's down there yeah. with the splint and that floor is just so filthy. And just as, hauling as a out, floor would. Yeah. As a floor would be. Hauling out that oil by the bucket like early on and the, yeah. before they have the, I don't know if that was, I guess that's how they did it. Or maybe his operation just wasn't big enough to afford the equipment yet. I couldn't quite decide, but either way, that's just brutal. That milkshake, uh, McDonald's <laughs> milkshake sludge. <laughs> I wonder if much like there is a group that makes sure that you're treating your animals ethically on a movie uh-huh. set, if there isn't an environmental uh, person whose job it is is to make sure that your milkshake doesn't go into yeah. the ground forever. Yeah, or is that shit toxic to the actors? Yeah, I don't know. I, I bet it know. is. <laughs> and I don't think we mentioned yet, you know, the first almost 15 minutes of this movie are dialogue free, which is one of my favorite things that uh, I've yeah. seen a few movies do stuff like this, but he certainly takes it to a pretty extreme level with 15 minutes, but it's just gripping. I wonder if you don't appreciate Johnny Greenwood enough if that 15 minutes are filled with dialogue because it gives you yeah. 15 minutes to go, hey, check it out. Yeah. This is going to be different. This is this is the emotional through line of this movie made clear by the score. Like, yeah. notice this because you yeah. wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He does. He has a lot of room, which, you know, that might have been one of the things to make him nervous. He's nervous going in. Then Paul Thomas Anderson It's like, and get this, you've got (laughs) the first 15 minutes of this movie to yourself. I, yeah, if, if PTA said that, that was a mistake. (laughs) He should have kept that to himself. (laughs) Yeah, probably so. He's like, I don't have Tom York to lean on. No, I'm just kidding. One of the great faces that gets introduced early on in this movie is is Fletcher Hamilton, the Siren Hines character. Yeah, he's awesome. One of the great faces in all of movies. Yeah, where do I know him from? I've I've seen him before, and when I saw him yesterday, he looks... God, who does he look like? He looks a little bit like someone else. Oh, I can't think if there's an actor that he sort of looks like. And I couldn't quite place it. He's a that guy in so many movies. Yeah, like he's yeah, just, you're right. He's just great and valuable. Like, if you need a face that's going to be in a <laughs> in this movie, uh-huh. like, like his is is perfect. Like, if you've got a DDL, you're going to need a Siren Hines, and and he's right there. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great faces in this movie. Um, the uh, like I said, there's not a ton of characters, but um, if you the, don't have a lot of dialogue, you need a great face. Do you think he, that's he, what they were going for here with like uh, with the Paul Dano stuff? Like uh, another great maybe. face. I'm looking at the faces now. The guy who plays his brother Henry, Kevin J. O'Connor, man, great face. Yeah. Uh, that little girl, Mary Sunday, great, great face. face. You know, Mary Sunday had kind of a come and see face, also like a very aged old, an aged young girl. Totally. You know? She looked like she had eye bags as like an eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm Intense. looking at the cast now, and I didn't realize that uh, our buddy Paul F. Tompkins was in it. Which part was he? 
So in the scene where Daniel Plainview, not the first business meeting he has with the town, but like one of the one of the middle ones, he goes in, he gives his pitch, and the town just erupts in the pews, fighting over what's going to happen. And remember when he just pieces out and he leaves? He's like, I don't need this. Yeah, yeah. The guy who runs out of the meeting after him and says, no, 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 wait, like, like, we'll, we're going to work with you. It's going to be okay. And then Plainview goes, I wouldn't take this site for free. That's Paul F. Tompkins. Really? Yeah. Oh man, I got to go. I'm going to put that in right after we finish this and, and check that out again. Yeah. Cause I know we talked about it cause he was in, uh, I mean, he's been in a couple of Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Was it Magnolia that we talked about it? Yeah. Yeah. God. BFT. Lucky devil. I know, man. Could you imagine? Like, I would. You, you could probably get away with being an extra in There Will Be Blood. I could see you dirtying up as like the sort of uh, the anti gruff bearded guy. There were also the the, the fair skinned ones like yourself. Oh yeah, I, I'm glad you went there with it because any makeup artist would have to have me in the chair for like six hours to put enough facial hair on this. No, there were, space to get me going. I think every movie like this needs a guy like you yeah. in there with like, you know, shiny apple cheeks because Aww. you you, you got to show the guy who's like fucking miserable. He's like, I don't, I don't fit in here. I'm a man of a different time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a time traveler, traveler that's made a terrible mistake. <laughs> um, let's talk about Paul Dano for a minute, uh, yeah. the, or for many minutes. The, I remember now the first time I saw this. I was one of the dummies who uh, was confused the entire film about whether these guys were brothers, twins, or if there was some weird. And I think that's why the movie, why I didn't love it the first time, because I left thinking, were they the same guy? Was he a figment of his imagination? Was he not real? I thought there was some weird thing going on, and there wasn't at all. He just got him to play brothers. I think the thing that doesn't tie that thread up ably in a way that you would expect from a film and a filmmaker that is so good at like making all the pieces fit is that you never see Paul after his first scene. (laughs) Yes. And that's why you're (laughs) waiting for the Paul shoe to drop. You're like, surely, surely there's a scene where it's going to be revealed that Paul has been doing Eli burlesque and he's infiltrated the the church and he's going to take it down from the inside or something. Yeah. And it's, and it's like an, an unintentional amount of tension put into this film that, that is, uh, it's distracting, unfortunately. It is. That's the one knock is that, uh, and I, I, now it's kind of coming back to me. I totally remember thinking because there's the one scene where, uh, where Eli is that brutal scene where he, where he just brutalizes his father is just so raw and like yeah. demeaning. Yeah. But he says something about, he references Paul and he said, Paul made the deal or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think when I saw that the first time, my takeaway was that he had a, like a split personality or something. Right. And that really messed with me. Cause I, it just, it didn't feel right. It's because it wasn't right, but that was a distraction for sure. Especially because, uh, you know, around this time, I feel like the split personality storyline in a movie was was a thing, a thing that one would was expect it? on occasion, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And 
you know, the story was, I'm sure you know this, he had another actor cast as uh, Eli and Dana was cast as Paul, which was a very small part. And this guy, Kel O'Neill, got fired after a couple of weeks. And PTA was just like, hey, Paul Dano's great. You should do both parts. <laughs> I, I mean, I think you and I could, you know, write a long list of the of the many, you know, regrets we have in our lives or, or like the, the moments where like we wish they had turned out differently, but boy, when the, there will be blood train leaves without you. Yeah. (laughs) When you had a ticket on it. Yeah. That's gotta be tough. Yeah. That's tough. And the, the, the longstanding sort of lore was that, uh, DDL was too intimidating for him and he couldn't hang. But I, I did read some articles where he came clean years later and he's like, no, that's not the deal at all. He's like, I didn't, you know, I didn't handle things right. And Paul and I just didn't work out. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. That's tough to be painted with that brush. You know? The first brush? Yeah. With either right. brush, I guess. Yeah. You don't want to be the guy that that has a reputation for not working with well with Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think you That's find true. a way to make it work. Uh, that first scene with with Eli though, when he finally comes to, uh, not when they're building the fire or whatever, but when they first are sitting down for the negotiation, basically, that really just sets into motion what is the central uh, conflict in this movie which is this battle between these two men. Um, un- unlike any other sort of battle between two men that you've seen in any movie, though, it's really weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like the battle for the soul of the town, for any town that they're occupying at the same time. Yeah, that and just like, I mean, he eventually says it, when he finally confides with who he thinks is his brother, that great scene where he says, you know, there's a competition in me and Mm -hmm. I don't want anyone else to win. Yeah. And that's sort of what's going on with he and Eli too, uh, starting with that negotiation. Yeah. It's so, all of the scenes of negotiation in this film are just riveting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love it every time he meets with the, uh, I mean, the map guy. I don't know who the guy is that knows who yeah. owns all the properties. but That's so fun. W- when he has that first meeting and he's, he said, can it all be got? <laughs> can all the land be got? And he goes, sure. <laughs> that uh, that was Al, right? Because later on he says, don't be thick in front of me, Al. And I think that's yeah. my favorite line in the movie. <laughs> Don't be thick in front of me, Al. Another one of my favorite lines is during that first negotiation when Paul Dano asks him which church he goes to. And it's like the ultimate almost politician's answer. He's like, yeah. I, you know, I like uh, I like many different churches. And then he goes, it's almost not noticeable. He goes, I like everything. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I like everything. When in fact, he hates everything. Yeah. Yeah. He'll say what it takes to close the deal. Yeah, I mean, he, it's weird because he, he never, even from the beginning, he never feels truthful or trustworthy, even though th- we haven't really seen him be either one of those things yet. He just, Daniel Day-Lewis brings this just severe unease to uh, this character that like, you just know he's fucking trouble. 
What's interesting about Plainview is that when he makes his pitch to the towns, it is never a a you you can trust me because of how I am with people. It is always you can vet me by the success in my past. Right. Look at look at this dig and the one before that and the one before that. You yeah. know, you know when you deal with me, you're going to get a well that produces and you're going to make a ton of money, but at no point is he ever making the case that he's a trustworthy person for any other reason than than previous right. success? Right, and that's why he, you know, has adopted this child as a prop. I mean, uh, their relationship is interesting. We should unpack that for a second. Yeah, he ha- he has the son that he basically kind of takes over and adopts from one of his the early rigs that his father dies, and he he clearly is using him as a prop. And even says so very cruelly at the end, but um, he also can't keep his hands off of him. Like clearly loves this kid too. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's it's so interesting, like how their relationship is born through like the violence of his father's death. Yeah, you understand that there is a mom, but she is she's gone. Yeah, died at childbirth. He said. It's. I mean, every time we're in the well, it feels dangerous because of that first scene, because of H.W.'s father's death. Yeah. And and I guess going back before that, like like that opening scene where Daniel breaks his leg. Like, yeah. we're, whenever inside a well, feeling safe or good about things. Yeah, I mean, that's where the title kind of comes back. It's uh, those aren't bloody occasions, but I mean, the title says, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's got it's a very imposing title of impending badness there will be blood right great title it does what it says on the movie poster (laughs) well it's interesting too because there's not a lot of blood until you know the 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 money shot at the end yeah and and that is the promise fulfilled i guess eventually the two scenes that you love chuck are the pipe laying scene and the money shot at the end (laughs) but you rarely stick around that long until the end do you what is wrong with you you're done by then the uh, the job site is not a safe place for a child, and no. yet HW is there all the time. Well, and he goes deaf because of it. Yeah, yeah. I for a non professional actor to be as expressive as this actor is throughout the film, and He's unexpressive great. in a very specific way. Like yeah. all those scenes where where Daniel's making the pitch and he's just stoically behind him. Yeah. It's magical. Yeah, it's really good. And he didn't really, it's sort of, I think you see this a lot of movies where you get a, a non-actor kid who does a great job and they never do anything else because yeah. they're, uh, what's perfect about them is that they were non-actors to begin with. Yeah. I get it though. Like if you're, if you're, if you're Dylan Frazier, what do you do after this? Where is there to go? You've been thanked on stage at the Academy Awards by, by Daniel Day-Lewis. Did he thank him? Yeah. Like as his son. Wow. (laughs) My son and my son in the movie. He said something like that. Oh, Jesus. That's amazing. How does it get better than that? No, it doesn't. Probably just hang it up and and go go work at the Pontiac dealership or something. Yeah, that's probably what he does. 
You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. So I was talking about the, you know, the central driving uh conflict in this movie is Eli and Daniel's relationship. And it's, uh, it's just one started. There's that negotiation. And after that, there's this, it's just a constant power play against each other. Starting off with that first one where he, uh, Eli asked to christen the well and Daniel (laughs) fucking just pulls a rug out and, and uses Mary and blesses the well himself right in front of his face. A lesser movie, I think, would have had Daniel do this at Eli in a more pronounced way. Yeah, yeah. But the most withering thing that Daniel could do was ignore Eli completely the way he did. Yeah, you're right. I didn't notice that. There's not that one shot that you expect in that scene where he zeroes in on him and you get the the close-up of him, his eyes looking at his face. Yeah. It's it's like that scene in Tombstone. I'm sorry, I didn't know you were there. You may go. Like that kind of withering, like you don't even register to me as as a person, as a yeah. as a thing. You know the other time they do this, I mean it's a total character thing now that I think about it, is the other power play he makes is when he uh there's that sort of picnic table scene when they're taking lunch and he brings Mary over and tells Mary how uh, he he basically, in so many words, says, "I'm your father now, and you're not going to get hit anymore." And the whole time, I'm like, and he's saying, "Your dad can't hit you, or it's not going to hit you." And the whole time, I'm like, "Wait, isn't that like his dad right there?" Yeah. And he doesn't even acknowledge him. He doesn't look over and be like, "Right." When you're so powerful, you don't even have to look at the target of your ire. <laughs> yeah. Like that's true power, right there. Oh, absolutely. That's like the the level 300 guys in Red Dead Redemption. They're not even looking. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite sequences having to do with Mary is when she and HW are playing and they jump off the deck 
circle around and jump off the deck. Yeah. And then after one of the jumps, we cut to the wedding. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's I a great that. transition. I love that cut too. It was really nice. Yeah, that's a great flash forward because you um you see that you see it the writing on the wall when they start playing together right then. Yeah. Not that they're just like uh they're gonna be buddies like, oh, they're gonna get married. Right. It easily connects the continuity too in a movie that that does not have comparatively as much dialogue as other films. You need to be good at showing that visually and you're gonna need to probably butt cut the two sequences together right. the way they do. Yeah, yeah. Uh the the Eli stuff, like, you know, you know that he's a preacher and he's so soft spoken. And then like an hour into it, you get it that first sermon and the healing. Yeah. And it's like, oh, <laughs> okay. That's what's that's what's going on here. Right. Uh, there there's no indication that that's what you were about to dive into as a viewer. I love the power play. And we're just gonna be jumping around this whole conversation, which is Oh good. yeah, yeah. But the but we talk so much about the power play between Daniel and Eli having like non-subtle elements to it, but the subtlety mm-hmm. of people coming off of Daniel's job site and being proselytized to yeah. by Eli and his church, like being issued the little fabric crosses, like being invited to church, like yeah. that kind of invasion into into the yeah. workplace there is so like it's it's subtly antagonistic. Yeah, and the one guy uh just kind of barges right by. Yeah. That might have been Paul F. Tompkins for all I know. <laughs> yeah. But that is sort of the deal is that he has got these uh in those days with the vast expanse of nothingness, when you built an oil well, you were building a town. Mm-hmm. And he makes that great point. He's like, you know, you're going to have schools and you're going to have uh, business and you know, like this, I'm, what I'm bringing is opportunity, not just this oil business. And the one thing in his way is this fucking church and this guy in a weird way. He is the obstacle. I love that Daniel's salesmanship is so fast and sharp that he ends up fucking himself fairly early on when, when Eli's like, Where's that road you promised going to go? And he's like, the church first. Yeah. Church guy <laughs> in the crowd. And like, like he's so, he's so fast. That ends up being his undoing. Like, yeah. like being so easy to please in that moment sets himself yeah. up. Yeah, you're right. I didn't really think about that. And that's an uncharacteristic give, I think. Right. Right. Because he's so hungry. Yes. In the beginning to close the deal, he gets a little bit uh, less so as the film goes on and as he as he amasses his power. He'd never well, do that kind of deal in the next town. No, and you know what? That kind of ties in, too, with the end because it all culminates in the ultimate power play when like, he starts out really desperate for the deal and then that, and that last negotiation, sort of bookended by these negotiations he secretly knows that he already has that fucking oil yeah. from the bandy tract. And that's where he, he dupes him into renouncing God. And uh, that's, I mean, that is such a power play. He's, he's a drunk, like he's just a slurring, cruel drunk at the end, but he never loses the facility of memory. 
Yeah. And he never forgets a slight, even if it's a, if, if, even if it's an untrue slight, like the perceived slight. Yes. He'll never forget it. Yep. And that's such a reminder. Like he reminds you as a character, how he'll never forget stuff. Oh, yeah. And so by the end, everything's on the table when Eli shows up and you wonder how he's going to return the favor for that initial baptism, like that that yeah. baptism. Oh man, where, that fucking scene. Yeah. Am I remembering correctly that that was basically the trailer to this movie? Like, I I abandoned my boy. Like they basically oh, just maybe. showed that sequence, and that was the trailer to this. Oh movie. really? God, I abandoned my boy. That was tough stuff, man. Yeah. yeah. Dude, I mean, it is. It is a war after that. He's and and you know he's a man of God supposedly, but you know as a viewer he's doing this to humiliate him. Like it's personal for him too. He's not righteous. You're okay. We're gonna do this game again, Chuck. All right. <laughs> you're this time. You're Paul Dano. You're not Paul. Right. You're not Paul Thomas Anderson. You're I'd Paul love Dano. To be Paul Dano. You've been field promoted into the part of Eli Sunday. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, man. You know. That the previous actor hired to play Eli Sunday left Fired. because <laughs> left because uh, he was uh, afraid of acting across of across from Daniel Day Lewis as allegedly. Well, that's what he thought at the time, sure. Uh, and now you have to slap Daniel Day Lewis around. Yeah, hard. <laughs> <laughs> take after take. Yeah, back to one, Paul Dano. Get get your slapping hand ready. Yeah. Oh man, he owns this movie. He does such a good job. Like I've always been a big Paul Dano fan, but yeah. I didn't know he could do this when this came out. It's incredible. He's so great. So great in this. I don't I think if you're casting it, you can't go for the you can't go for Daniel Day Lewis's equal. You have to right. play compatibility games, right? Like, because Paul Dano's got soft power to mm. Daniel Day-Lewis's hard power. Yes. That's what makes Eli's character so effective at getting his goat, right? Yeah. He does have the soft power because he, um, for better or for worse, he has the influence of the the townsfolk because, you know, back then they the church was a very big deal. It was sort of the center of things. They were all, the preacher was... Yeah, I mean, they weren't the mayor, but they had the mm-hmm. same sort of influence, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the explosion sequence. When his son loses his hearing and that Johnny Greenwood score, man, is just uh, so unsettling and it's magic hour yeah. and this fire is raging and he's running with his son. And uh, that that whole sequence is just... It's it's one of the best sequences in movies, not just in this movie. You're right about light playing such a great part in the greatness of this scene. You experience the passage of time by the sun going down. Yeah. You also experience how Daniel Plainview changes forever in this moment. Yeah. You think you know who he is before this happens. And when Siren Hines' character is like, hey, H.W.'s got to be cool, right? Because you're standing right here next to me watching this explosion. Yeah. And the look on Siren Hines' face when when he realizes that, no, H.W. is not okay. 
Well, he says it, man. The line yeah. is, he says, he says, WH going to be okay. Is it HW or WH? I can't remember. HW. Now. He says, HW going to be okay. And he just goes, no, he isn't. <laughs> like he just flatly says it. That's uh, a really, oh, you think so, doctor, kind of line. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it leads to, uh, oh man, some of the most, especially now as a father, some of those brutal shit in this movie is uh, him him laying on the floor when the son's just making that sound, and that sound is driving him crazy, and he's trying to get him to stop, but he can't hear him, and then that all culminates in in. <laughs> It's hard to even talk about, man, the the abandoned boy scene when he puts him on that train and fucking leaves him there. It's so hardcore. It's another scene that makes me want more Siren Hines because like He's the guy. You see him as the guy behind the guy. And the way they reveal him is so great in that sequence. Yeah. With Daniel Day Lewis, like like exit DDL, enter Siren Hines, like and the and the screaming that we're meant to hear that that plain view does not yeah yeah as he leaves yeah the audience hears that but he doesn't that i mean you read that that fire caused problems for no country for old men like that's one of the fun trivial bits of oh, no. there will be blood like they were, were they shooting, shooting it nearby shooting in the same area of texas wow and and what when, did the smoke yeah, the yeah, the the smoke blew a day. <laughs> That's fantastic. And the No Country beat this out for best picture too, didn't it? It did. I That's tough, man. They're they're two perfect movies. They are. They are utterly perfect. And I almost wish that they did not exist in the same year. Yeah. So that this one may be appreciated more. I think I think generally No Country for Old Men is a more a more beloved film than this. I don't know if that sure if that is a, a correct take, but it feels no, that, that way is. to me. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people that. Uh, I mean, this is a very unsettling movie. Like I said, there's no protagonist you can root for, and this sort of began that trajectory of his uh, with the master too, where uh, there's just, there's not a like a not a lot of likability in it. So right. it's, they're challenging, tough films. Um, yeah. But speaking of the Oscars, it's funny. I was thinking like. Some years you get this when you have two perfect films and then there are other years where Crash and Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> yeah, spread it around, guys. <laughs> spread it around. Can we do a little like grouping of a few years or something? Yeah. It's brutal. Yeah, it's funny how those groupings work, especially in retrospect, you know? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the brother uh, who is not the brother. Um, Henry? That is... Yeah, Henry, and not just him, but like what he means for this film is way more than uh, it, than this brother character coming in because it it opens up. It does so much to Daniel to to Daniel Plainview's character. He he's more human than he is at any point in the movie, which is still not much around Henry. It for a little while, like he bonds with him. I think. It's a chance to redeem himself, really, after what happened to H.W., like, there's some humanity left in him that that you see in his relationship with, with his fake brother, and 
he gets Don Drapered by him. He does. He does. Uh, he he trusts him, and uh, you can tell that there's a, a brokenness to his his family line. Yeah, emotionally within him, but he starts to trust him, and you can tell that he's he's feeling this void. And you know, sometimes when you see a character is uh, just kind of misanthropic as as Daniel Plainview, you wonder. Or I wonder, like, what got them there? Mm. And he clearly has a broken family history because from the moment he meets Henry, even though he doubts who he may be, he starts asking all kinds of questions about his sister and about, you know, he he wants some sort of connection like that. Yeah, and it doesn't come across as uh, interrogative. Like, he's not, in, he's not interrogating him in a way that would feel unnatural or would give away his suspicions about Henry. And right. it's very well done the way, the way Daniel does this. It's a slow drip in confirming the guy's identity. And yeah. there's just one, it's funny how when Henry slips, it isn't that he said something that was incorrect. It's that he didn't say anything at all in reaction yeah. to a reference. And that's what did him in. Well, what was it? Because I, I didn't quite pick up on it. So what what happens is, uh, I mean, I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you've probably seen it, but they really kind of do become brothers. Yeah. And there's these, you know, a lot of the movie kind of, there's probably another half hour of them and it doesn't show them bonding in a chummy way, like at the bar, you know, hugging each other, but they're, he they becomes become- the HW, like he's the sidekick yeah. on all the, all the missions. That's right. And he's a business partner. And um, then they eventually go to a brothel. And Henry is drunk and he's asking for money um, to, to go be with a lady. And I didn't, that's when the moment happens, but I didn't quite pick up on what the tell was. Oh, no, it happened before that, Chuck. Oh, it, it happened, did? It happened on the beach. When they, okay, when they went uh, swimming? Daniel refers to something on shore that when Henry has his head down, he does not react to. Oh. And that's the moment where Daniel's like, my brother would have would have gotten that reference. That was oh, not a, shit. That was not a deep cut. Uh, I did real, not notice the that. The real Han- Henry would get it. And so when we cut to the brothel later, that's I think why the he's already in a bad place. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, that makes a lot more sense now because he's just sitting there uh, f- clearly upset and uh, angry, angrier than normal. <laughs> I think one of my favorite shots in this movie is once that realization is made clear. We're back in the water with Daniel. And I'm like, well, the first time I saw this movie, I was like, well, Daniel's going to drown him. And right. Right. Going to be what happens. But instead it's, it's Daniel with his arms out and yeah. the wave behind him is coming. Oh, and yeah, Daniel's man. not, you never, you know this, you never turn your back on the ocean. Yeah. Daniel's Daniel's propelled forward into yeah. the camera by the it's wave. So he is not, he's not, scared or yeah. or damaged by it at all and that was such a dark foreshadowing of what was going to happen like that oh, power man. of him as a character yeah. like not even nature can harm him yeah like, almost like he marshals the wave i, yeah. I love that shot and a I movie filled shot. with great shots yeah i love that shot and i w- i just sort of appreciated it as an aesthetic thing but uh i, l- I love your uh uh, the film paper? It? Yeah, the film paper. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. In the next well, eight pages, I'll tell you why that's significant. Yeah, for for you guys listening, uh, first of all, check out Friendly Fire. But that, that's sort of one of the running jokes on Friendly Fire is I think you did the first one, the um, like you know the student writing the film paper, which is to say, you know something, some sort of weird kind of deep. Right. If you're making meaning. some sort of like deeper meaning connection <laughs> in a film, we're going to call that yeah. a film paper on Friendly Fire. I, what was the first one? I can't remember, but it was uh, what was it? Oh, I don't remember the first time. Oh man, that was the first time I forgot time you did my it. first film paper. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to jog I'm memory. pretty sure it was a first blood thing like that <laughs> because that was a film I actually wrote film papers about. I was a film studies oh, major That's and great. so I wrote I wrote my share of 8 to 16 page film papers. Did you see the last I, one? I haven't because yeah, I haven't either. I uh the flop house did it from what I read and, and i haven't it's listened great. to that episode either just you, sh- you should <laughs> they come down on it pretty hard though it's and not in a like oh it's not a good movie way they're like this is sort of trash and xenophobic and racist and just bad in every way i don't understand how you can start with a first blood and just get worse and worse and worse and worse every time like it's got yeah. such it's like a house with good bones right Right. Like, the Rambo universe, like like the studs are square. Every corner is perfect. Yeah. The trim uh-huh. is great. And and movie after movie they just take fucking sledgehammers to that character. You're right. I love your analogies, dude. It's awful. They should have <laughs> the last Rambo movie should have been a first blood type of movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever see that last one. I don't know if I have the heart to. Like, I, I'm afraid it's I going to spoil. Sometimes. It might. Sometimes I won't see a sequel film because I just don't want the, the earlier stuff ruined. Oh, dude, I, do, I, did, I didn't see Anchorman 2 for that very reason. I heard it wasn't good. And I was like, I don't want to see it then. I still haven't. That's a great poll. That's I That's either. one of those ones. Um. All right. So. Back to There Will Be Blood. Uh, I did want to mention when the brother shows up, uh, it's very key here. And I made a special note, um, you know, kind of jumping back to when Henry arrives on the scene. In that very first bit, you finally sort of get his care. You know, Plainview is not someone that he, he doesn't seem like he just wants to be rich or, you know, you don't know what his motivation is as a person. It's not super clear. Uh, until the scene and he finally just lays it out there halfway through the film when he says, talks about the competition, not wanting to lose, but he says a very key thing, which is that he wants to make enough money to get away from everyone. Yeah. He hates people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how family is the cheat code for that, right? Like when Henry first arrived, I was like, when Henry first arrived, I was like, Daniel's going to shoot him in the head day one, even yeah. if he is the brother. Because what does it mean? It means another person to divide the money with. That's and what, what is the too. one thing that Daniel's going to be unwilling to do? It's going to be that. Yeah. And the longer that Henry lived in the movie, the more you get the, the more you understand that like by being family, that's a protection for him against Daniel. It's the thing that, that suspends the, the competitive nature of Daniel. It allows him to continue in a way that no other person would be allowed. Yeah. And in the end, when he kills him, 
you know, you said you sh- shoot him on the dead and head in day one. He shot him on the head in day like whatever. How much time has, has elapsed? A few months, maybe six yeah. months, a season. <laughs> yeah, enough to but, get a few more wells. Yeah, he he, but he does so. Like my take was that uh, not because he was duped, but I think more because he was hurt. Yeah, and he would never admit that. But after that, you see him weep when he sees a picture of his real brother in that diary. Yeah. Like he finally made, he finally made this human connection and got burned. I think that's kind of his undoing too. I mean, you see this a lot in real life. You get, you get dumped really hard that first time and you're never the same. Yeah. You're never as open with anyone. Cause it could always happen again. <laughs> after that. And I think it's the same with family when, when family hurts you or, or, who you think is a family member hurts you or, or anything else. Like, like you're never as open as the moment where you're made to regret that openness. Yes. Yeah. And that's, and that's Daniel's time. Yeah. And he kills him. And that ends up being his uh, undoing in a few ways, because I think emotionally he, he put himself out there for the first time and just got wrecked. Yeah, And uh, it's also his undoing in that that's what sort of spins the plot forward to the Bandy stuff. Right. Because Bandy knows that he killed him. I love, like, everything in this movie is almost, like, without dialogue. But when Bandy produces the gun and you know, that's... (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Yeah. And And the only other option is, like, go down the road of keep killing people. Yeah. Like then you kill Bandy because he knows. Yeah. Daniel has a code and that code is only kill family members or, or married in family members, like legal right. family members. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's his deal. Yeah. Cause I guess Eli is a family member at some point. Because yeah. Mary in law. Uh, yeah. That's right. Um, earlier you mentioned the, uh, the, the grudges that he's able to hold, over slight or perceived slight. And I'd forgotten like the, the big case of this one is the standard oil guy. Yeah. <laughs> and all the guy said was like, man, you know, you, you and your son, you can take care and hang out with your son. <laughs> and that was it, man. It's so innocent. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that it was like, if it edged a little more into, into flip or cutting, it would give you some sort of like you'd, as a viewer, you would forgive Daniel in a way that he is unforgivable. Yeah. It must be totally innocent. And that standard oil guy is, is innocent. Oh, man. Yeah, and he's great. Like, he felt like a non-actor. I don't know who he was, but yeah. he uh, the, the way they handle that uh, the in the restaurant later on, man, that the, scene... The napkin over the face. Oh my god! Insult was amazing. Holy shit! It is just ridiculous how great it is. How? What was he doing? Was that a? I mean, was that an actor's choice? It was such again a power move. How hard are you biting the inside of your cheek? If you're Paul Thomas Anderson, you're sitting <laughs> underneath the camera, and you're watching that happen. Yeah. Like you've got oh, yeah. to be. Giddy. <laughs> yeah. That it's that was insane. an amazing scene. That uh and that's he was drunk guy at the bar. Yeah. 
I, he drank that other guy's uh, shot of whiskey. Yeah, that's a power move too. Have you ever been to a restaurant with someone who is embarrassing to go to restaurants with? <laughs> um, no, but I kind of know what you're talking about. The there's a scene in here that that like makes my skin crawl and it's not it's so not obvious. But when Daniel goes up to the bar to get the drinks that he and HW ordered and says, oh, we ordered these before those other guys. Just letting you know. Yeah, that is a quality of a person who's bad at restaurant that it like <laughs> I know I know we both know people like this that I'll never go places with these people. <laughs> Yeah. They don't know how to be. <laughs> and even if you get your drink second, you just can't say that. It makes you a bad person. And this is yeah. like, it's so in keeping with <laughs> Daniel's whole worldview. Like like that code, he is not going to be slighted by being served second. Oh, no, man. The oil guys are there. Yeah. And, and the fact that he he's in there by himself with his son. He gets addressed first by the the waiter, and then this the big the big hot the big fat cats come in all together, and all of a sudden everyone's just paying attention, and that is like like the humiliation for him is real. As for a viewer, it's like uh, come on, man, like who cares? But it's a big deal to him, uh, and, and though he doesn't, he only murders two people. I think he wants to murder a lot of people in this movie. Yes. He wanted to kill that waiter, right? And it almost feels like there's more danger being with Daniel when he doesn't because it's just like a coiled spring. Yeah. Like like the tension just becomes so great and there's nowhere for it to go but at the delivering end of a bowling pin. One of my favorite lines of dialogue in the whole movie is from this restaurant scene though, Chuck. It's, <laughs> Which one? He's trying to get through to his son. And it's unclear whether or not they can even have any kind of communication with each other. Yeah, yeah. He's like checking him out, making sure he's okay. And he's like, you know what? You know what's going to do it? All we need is a good, strong, expensive meal. Yeah. (laughs) Is what he says. Yeah, he orders two steaks. There's like, uh, there's certain friends in certain situations, I feel like, where that is the line, right? Yeah. (laughs) We've just been through a thing. Let's get a good, strong, expensive meal. Dude, that would be you and me, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's what I was thinking about. Um, by the way, I had a note in here I forgot to mention. Um, I went back and subtitled that that first brutally uh, abusive uh, baptism scene mm-hmm. with Eli because uh, there's so much going on. It's chaotic. Yeah. And so I subtitled it because Daniel Day-Lewis was saying stuff. The whole time. And at the very end, after he slapped him and he gets up and everyone's cheering and it's just like complete chaos in there. He goes, he just gets up and goes, there's a pipeline. (laughs) Cause the only reason he went through that is cause he needed that pipeline. Like that's the only reason he endures that and doesn't just kill Eli in that room. He goes in at Paul Dano in the corner of the, of the stage and he gets in his face and he says stuff that we can't hear. Yeah. That's not in the subtitles. Yeah. That's the big, that's like the lost in translation mystery. As far as I'm concerned, those are not loving words like the lost in translation. What did he say though? Cause you know, he's in character and like, it's Daniel like Day Lewis just doing his thing. If you rewatch that scene, I think Paul Dano breaks at the end of it. There's a moment where he, like his body does a thing and his face does a thing right. where 
I don't know what DDL says, but I oh, think... Oh, maybe he's fucking with them then. I wonder. I really wonder. <laughs> What's it like living with Daniel Day-Lewis while he's making this movie? Like a method guy? Like, what what comes home to you every night? You know? <laughs> the night Daniel Day-Lewis came home from set <laughs> is the horror movie that, <laughs> that I would watch. Yeah. I don't know. I mean... That's probably pretty intense. He's one of those guys, though, that's that's worth the reach. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the other thing with that time jump, too, uh, as we go in, into that third act that where you knew they were going to get together was when um, it shows him learning sign language and you see Mary behind him also learning the sign language. Yeah. yeah. You didn't say that earlier, did you? No. Okay. It's <laughs> like, wait a minute. It's one of the subtle ways, like, just besides... Mary's proximity to HW at all times and her willingness to like play and seek safety yeah. with him and the plane views. Like it's her, she's interested in, in being with him for the long haul. Yeah. She wants to be able to communicate with him. Yeah. And, and that, and you know, the next thing you see is that Daniel Plainview has gotten what he wanted. He made so much money that he was able to build a big house and, remove himself from society yeah. and not, not have to see people. And he's this angry, old, uh, loathsome drunk in this huge house, uh, with no, nothing, nobody he likes around him. He's surrounded by nothing that he likes. Correct. I thought it was interesting that his housekeeper mm -hmm. reminded me so much of Eli's father to the extent that I thought it was uh, Eli's father working for him. <laughs> like, even though I don't fit. think the years work there, I think I think that man is long dead. But I didn't notice that. Did he look like him? I thought so. But in a way that, like, everyone on the job site looked like Daniel Day-Lewis to me also in a certain way. Like, like yeah. dirty, hard-living, about-to-die, decrepit men. yeah. And and he's just uh, he's he's sort of lost his mind at this point. I don't I don't know if there's a legit mental illness going on or if it's just kind of you know misanthropic hermit syndrome. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think when you're when you're shooting a firearm inside your home, yeah, randomly, <laughs> that's a bad sign. Elvis Elvis style. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I do like that bowling alley though that he's got oh, in his house. It's he's great. bowling alley rich. Yeah, he's bowling alley rich. And you know, I just is the guy is he a sociopath? Like, what is his diagnosis? I, I mean, I think we both have known mean drunks, and I wonder to what extent there might not be anything else to it. Maybe so. If. We rarely see him sober, and when we do see him drinking, it is like a force multiplier on his personality. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I wonder if that's all it is. Yeah, that may be it. Uh, I read that this house is outside of L.A., Th this mansion, I mean. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. I wonder if it's go-and-seeable. In a well, way that the Boogie Nights house is not. Did I tell you I went to go, I was out in, in West Covina on an errand and I attempted to go to the Boogie Nights house. And what, you can't, is there a fence or something? It's too far off the street. It's behind a gate 
and you uh, can't even see it. It was really disappointing. Uh, just ring the buzzer. You and I are going to buy that house, Chuck. <laughs> oh, man. That's the One plan. Day, I'm saving up. Um, you get that breakup scene with the son, which is just brutal, man. Like the one thing he had in his life that you thought was had a chance at being some sort of pure relationship was his relationship with his son. And that time jumps forward and it's just like, it's such a slap to the, like a punch in the gut to the audience of what happened between them. You and I don't know anything about Paul Thomas Anderson's family, but <laughs> you get the sense, like we've talked about this a bunch, right? Like yeah, how family, dad issues, how family is issues. such a theme yeah. in his films and like nothing hurts quite like the the family member on family member emotional violence yeah. that we see so often in his movies. And in the same way that that we're seeing in our tour like changing and evolving with how he's setting up scenes and those three shot sequences, like the venom with which a family member destroys another family member in his movies yeah. is getting sharper and deeper and more awful to witness. Yeah. Like he's getting better at a cruel thing. Yeah. I mean, when Eli goes after his dad, he does it the same. And I think the scene was right before when, and we haven't even talked about it yet. When Daniel, that first beat down of Eli yeah. in, in front of the other guys he's working with. And then Eli does the same thing to his dad. It's just, it's the son of the abused, uh, yeah. abusive dad abusing his son basically, yeah. but it's his dad. Yeah. Yeah, it is rough. I think it's interesting that we get that thrumming Johnny Greenwood score throughout the entire movie. Yeah. Until the final scene, right? Like, we get it up until the confrontation, and then it falls away, and then and then it's almost shocking when it's gone. Yeah. Because once we move to the bowling alley, and it's yeah. not there, all you're hearing is the is the echo from that room. Yeah. All you're getting is their attention on each other. It's in the same way that we've been talking about. Like you you appreciate the edits because there are so few of them. You yeah. you get a sense of the of the tension here when the music goes away. Yeah. Absolutely. And that that does uh that starkness to that ending, I think that lends itself to that and it's uh it's so brutal. I mean, he's in such bad shape. He's just an awful depraved human throughout a, but especially at the end it's a great sweater though it is a great sweater <laughs> they they really uh they really choose angles to emphasize the sweater <laughs> once that once we get to the mansion it's That's very right. comfortable uh but he ends up on the ground again and uh the, the way they enter eli is so great because you only see him the camera kind of stays there on the ground yeah. so you see from the waist down someone walking up and you're kind of like well who's that going to be then he kneels down and it's Eli and it's this, I mean, the ending to this movie, man, just brutally, uh, it's just brutal. It's such a ride. Like if, if you're doing this linearly, like you're thinking about how you top yourself yeah, in not just a career, but in a movie, you know, yeah. you got to bring this thing to a conclusion somehow. How do you do that? <laughs> There will be blood. Yeah, I mean the the this is a legendary scene now, partially because of the drink your milkshake, which became like a a legit meme. When when 
DDL is is softballing bowling balls at him. Yeah. <laughs> and then hits the bucket. Mm-hmm. And they don't cut away, Chuck. Like the bucket flips into the camera and yeah. then DDL keeps coming like across That, that was such a happy accident. To not cut away and instead we're swinging the camera as he passes. Like, yeah. holy shit. That was amazing. <laughs> well, and it's funny. I say that's a happy accident. What if Daniel Day-Lewis is like, I was trying to hit that bucket. <laughs> Where does the bowling ball go? I mean, he's gunning them at the camera guy. Yeah. And if it hits the bucket, like, what are the chances that it hits the rig? Yeah. Boy, man, him coming back. Like, he, I, I try to think of Eli's character as like, um, like what he was thinking before that. It's yeah. like, oh, well, I need some money. Right. Uh, and so, you know what? I, I know we've had our differences in the past, but I'm going to go talk to my now in law. Uh, Mr. Plainview and see if he'll give me some money. <laughs> it's like a big mistake. With the understanding that family is a shield for the sort of violence that he gets later. Like, I think yeah. he feels like he's safe here. He does. He I mean, not. He, yeah, I think the worst he thinks might happen is that he will like run him out of there and yell at him or something. Right. He does. <laughs> I don't think he knows because... He doesn't know where he, uh, that he has just broken up with his son. Right. And like, is he's, he's having a, a pretty bad day. Yeah. He's a depraved guy, but he's at his lowest point, I think here. Yeah. Yeah. Not you a know, good time to ask for money. <laughs> you know, I, we've both been drunk before. We've both been very drunk together, but I don't know that I've ever been, uh, drunk and passed out in the middle of, of a bowling alley lane before drunk. You might if you had one in your basement. Yeah. You know what? That's true. <laughs> There's a I'm, big difference. I'm definitely dirt napping in the middle of a lane. <laughs> but it's such a great uh, revenge at the end. Like this whole movie, that central conflict with them back and forth is, you know, there's always one of them that wants to get the other one back for the last thing. And this is the end of that. He's never too drunk to see a play like to see a target that can be exploited. Yeah. There is no amount of drinking that could get him off target in this scene. I think that's what's so scary. Like he's wobbly and glassy eyed and gross and not super slurry. Yeah. But when Eli walks into that bear trap, it is over for him. Yeah. And the acting is just... (laughs) I mean, how many times I'd love to know a little bit about just shooting this last sequence, like if they waited till the end of the shooting schedule to do it or like it doesn't seem like this is one of those movies where it doesn't feel like you could just do this in the first third of your shooting schedule or anything like that. Like it's just a a rumble in the jungle level uh, acting exercise between these two guys. I go back and forth every time I watch this movie between the idea that Eli has been exposed as a charlatan and this is his moment of admitting it, or if he's just doing it for money. I think you could make a case either way. I think you're right. And I like both versions of the movie almost equally. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even think, I don't know how important that is. Yeah. I guess if you are an anti-Eli the whole movie, you want him to admit that he's a snake oil salesman and you want 
you want him to admit his fraudulence. But there's never there's never an indication of that. Like there's never that scene that you might get in a movie, yeah, where it shows him pocketing the 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 plate money or anything like that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like you aren't super clear whether or not he's a reliable character with his circumstances even like yeah can we trust that eli wouldn't say anything to get more money that he may or may not need maybe he thinks that daniel is down right and and persuadable and manipulatable <laughs> in a way that like well i mean eli's flying the globe proselytizing like maybe right. this is a good time to to get some some quick cash he's maybe got he's, money Maybe he fell into that kind of trap. Like maybe it's a it's a version of Eli trying to out Daniel Daniel and it just right. backfires. You can <laughs> even see that being a possibility. Yeah. It boy does it backfire. I yeah. didn't even I remember the first time I saw it too, and uh even last night, even though I knew what happened, it kind of takes you by surprise a little bit. Because he's out of control, he's throwing those bowling balls, but I did not anticipate uh, what happened and bludgeoning him to death. It really surprises because the, the, it seems as like a survivable circumstance. Yeah. At all times. Yeah. I could see him just kicking him in the gut until he was, you know, coughing up blood. Like I could see it going that far, but the he, main he, he took it to 11 <laughs> from this movie is you don't want to wear dress shoes to a bowling alley. He was slipping all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> that was his undoing, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. That that's last my, shot, too. That's what my so film paper's about. <laughs> no dress shoes at the bowling alley. Uh, that last shot is so great, too, when, the, when the, the house man comes down and I'm finished. That last line is just, doesn't get any better, man. Just so perfect. So spare still, even at the end. I know you and I are nerds about like when credits happen, like yeah. opening credits, especially like you'll see a director credit at, at the perfect time. Yeah. It's yeah. Flashy. <laughs> perfect frame. But, uh, but PTA has a real, like he has developed an instinct for when to drop the title. And, uh, this is one of those movies. Yeah, I'm a right. big fan of that too, of dropping the title card at the end. That's a yeah. cool thing. Yeah. How would you, I know every one of us is all you know, is fantasized about your, how you would do your credits and stuff. What Do you want a front of the movie thing? Cause you get your choice or a back of the movie thing. This is a great question. I think <laughs> you get the benefit at the beginning of designing what it looks like, like in, and in the way, in the way you don't get that benefit at the end. Like right. if you want to design a visual around what your name is superimposed over, like yeah. beginnings where it's at, like I'll always remember uh, John Woo's, director credit showing up in face off when Nick Cage gets out of his Cadillac Eldorado and right. his cape flows back uh-huh. and it, in slow motion, it just crackles and it's directed by John Woo at the bottom. Yeah. And you're like, this says it's everything. It's pretty great. This is everything yeah. about the, the director here. But I think in the, in a movie like this, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has graduated past the need for yeah any of that. And he's more interested in like, I really love the ending of Boogie Nights and, and Magnolia for the same reason. Like, like yeah. we, we ramp up and up and up, like the roller coasters clacking up to the top and then yeah. like the curtain fucking falls on yeah, the right music cue. 
He does. And the right credit at the end, like it's all yeah. perfectly timed in a way that like it's so intentional. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a uh although there's not much going on here at the end, he's just sort of sitting there. I feel like his movies it's hard to describe, but he ends them like five frames early or something. There's this weird energy to the way he ends his movies. Yeah. I agree. It's effective though, man, in yeah. a big way. And that's when that black title card, even though I think he did, like you said, there will be blood on this one, but um, there's something he said for the flashy thing in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you time that directed, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson card that hits you with the right music cue, that's another kind of power play. It's a little jolt. It's the last, it's the last chance to jolt you, you know? Yeah, it is. It's so great. great. It's a great moment. It's a great moment in a great movie. God damn, dude. I think we did it. A hundred minutes. I mean, we usually go longer, but I, I can be satisfied with this. I'm finished. Jack. Uh, Are you finished? Yeah, I'm finished. But before, uh, that'll be fine. That'll be fine. Um, before if I say we... I'm a pod man, I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> oh man, he's so good in this movie. I just can't get over how great he is in that voice, which he kind of ripped off from uh, John Houston, apparently. It's the perfect voice. God, he's good. It's the perfect um, voice. It's the perfect mustache. It's the perfect hat. Well, what a great hat movie. God damn, dude. That was the last thing on my list. That's what I was just about to say. The hat. Such a great hat. You can buy that hat, dude. I looked it up. What? There's a company called Baron Hats. All right, I'm looking it up right now. Baron, they, like I think it's spelled? B-A-R-O-N. And they make all the hats for movies. And it's called The Plain View. And it's like fucking $600, though. <laughs> That's so much money for a hat. But I want it so bad. Oh, my God. That's it, right? <laughs> they made it for the movie. Like, like they make Paul all F. the big Tompkins movie hats. has this hat. <laughs> oh, of course he does. Yeah, they, wow. they were probably crew gifts. God, could you imagine? It's pretty sweet. I don't know if I could pull it off, though. Ben Harrison probably could. Oh, yeah. He could totally. I, I feel like guy. I don't have a hat head or a hat face. <laughs> I look like the I look like the kid from the Sandlot when I put on a hat. I look like I look like Smalls. My I brother worked on that movie. I can't pull off a hat. God, what a what a great hat! It's a good looking hat, isn't it? Shoot, I'm. I looked I looked up one time Bob Dylan's uh, on the Rolling Thunder review tour. I don't uh-huh. even know much about Dylan, but he had that great hat. Yeah. It's that big sort of bolero hat, and it had the feather stuff on the side, and that great band. I was like, oh man, I wonder if anyone makes one of those. And I looked it up and it was like, it was almost like a thousand dollars for a perfect replica. And I'm like, I can't, I could never spend a thousand dollars on a hat that you wear like twice a year, maybe just to show off or something. I I will go as far as glasses. Like this, this whiskey glass I'm drinking out of is, is absurdly priced and I'm glad, oh, really? I, didn't, I'm glad I didn't buy it for myself. <laughs> but like, How much is it? You got to tell me. I feel like this is a $200 glass. Oh my God. It's dumb. But the difference <laughs> is you don't wear a hat every day and you can drink whiskey every day. That's a solid point. And that's a, a great way to end. And the punchline to all this, everyone is uh, next time I see Adam, we're both going to meet at the same bar and show up in this goddamn hat. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Double plane views. Double plane views. <laughs> All right, brother. This is a lot of fun. It was. Thanks so much for having me back. I love this project we're doing. Yeah, me too. And thank you, uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And we will see you next week. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.